Mark 14, verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat this Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful, and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. Well, today we're going to be taking communion together. And before we take communion, I'd just like to, for us to look at this passage and see what this passage has to tell us about communion. And I think there's two primary things that this passage tells us about communion or about the table. And the first thing is that in order to understand the table or communion, we need to have a good understanding of ourselves. In order to understand the table, we need to understand ourselves. So I have a few questions for you. Think about these questions yourself. Don't answer them out loud. Would you consider yourself to be an above-average driver? First question. Second question. Would you consider your, would, do you think that you make better decisions than the average person? Third question. Do you believe that you're more honest than the average person? Final question, would you ever betray the confidence of a very close friend of yours? Now, the majority of people would probably answer yes to the first three questions and no to the question, would you betray a close friend? Yet, research and experience shows us that we often tend to overestimate our good moral qualities. For example, according to the American Automobile Association, 83% of people say they are uh, somewhat or much more cautious than the average driver. Now, if you've been driving at all around, if 83% of the people were good drivers, I think it would be a different road. 83% of people think they're a good driver. We'd all like to think that we're, we make better decisions than the average person. We'd all like to think that we're more honest than the average person. Psychologists Ben Tappan and Ryan McKay did a study in which they asked participants to rate themselves on a number of different categories, and some of them were moral categories. And what they discovered 
was that virtually all individuals irrationally inflated their moral qualities. They thought they were much more moral than they actually were. Then you think about the last question. Would you ever betray the confidence of a close friend? Most of us would say, no, I would never do something like that. Well, Howard Hendricks did a study a number of years ago, and in that study he studied 264 or 246 pastors who had fallen into sexual sin and they were, you know, pastors or ministry leaders. And of those people that who had, who had committed adultery in the last 24 months, each person of that 246 had one thing in common. Each of the people said before that, that it would never happen to them. Each of them were convinced that they would never do such a thing. And yet they did. Psychologists call this aspect of human nature illusory superiority. We think that we're better than we are. And it appears most significantly in the realm of morality. The dean of the Harvard School of Business, Nitin Narya, wrote this in the Washington Post. In the lab, in the classroom, and beyond, we tend to be less virtuous than we think we are. And a little moral humility could benefit us all. Moral overconfidence is on display in politics, in business, in sports, really in all aspects of life. There are political candidates who say they won't use attack ads until late in the race. Their moral overconfidence is in line with what studies find to be generally, our generally inflated view of ourselves. We rate ourselves as above average drivers, investors, and employees, even though math dictates that can't be true for all of us. We also tend to believe that we'll we are less likely than the typical person to exhibit negative qualities and to experience negative life events, to get divorced, to become depressed, or have a heart attack. So we have this tendency to think of ourselves better than we are, and we see this in this passage that we're looking at today. In the passage we're looking at today, Jesus sends his disciples into Jerusalem to prepare the Passover for them to eat. Apparently, he had arranged for this upper room uh, to be available for them. And they're up in this upper room, and the twelve are there, and there's probably some other disciples that are with them. Right in the middle of the ceremonies, about probably a couple hours in, given the context of what happens here, about a couple hours in, Jesus says kind of abruptly, one of you who eats with me is going to betray me. And each and every one of them are saddened by this. And they come up to Jesus and they say, is it I? And I think that's not the best translation of the Greek for this phrase. In the Greek, there's a negative particle there, which indicates that they're not expecting a positive answer. They're not expecting a yes answer. One commentator I read suggests that it could be translated, surely not I. Surely you're not talking about me, Jesus. Surely you must be talking about someone else. You don't think that I'm the one who's going to betray you. Then in verse 28, Jesus indicates that all of his disciples will abandon him. But Peter, the spokesman for the group, the most vocal of the group, he says, even if everyone else does, even if everyone else fails you, I will not fail you, I will not betray you, I will not leave you. And it says at the end of the passage, all the disciples said the same thing. They say, even if we have to die with you, we will not leave you. We will not fail you. We, not, we will not forsake you. But look at what it says in verse 50 of chapter 14. It says that they, speaking of the disciples, all left him and fled. 
After this, before the rooster crows three times, Jesus or Peter denies, swears up and down that he has nothing to do with Jesus. He doesn't know him. And when people say, you've been with Jesus, he says, I, I don't know the man. I have nothing to do with this man. Completely denies him three times. But all of them had confidence they knew no such thing. All of them said, I'll be with you to the end, Jesus. Even if it means dying, I'll be with you. Yet all of them failed them. Judas is the only one that formally betrayed Jesus. But all the disciples failed him. Yet this confidence in our own abilities isn't something new. It's something that's been going on since the fall. And we see back in Exodus 24 a story that kind of provides a context for what's happening here in Mark chapter 14. In Exodus uh, chapter 24, see, God has led the people of Israel out of Egypt. Remember, they were in slavery in Egypt. And God brought these plagues upon the Egyptians so that the Egyptians would let the Israelites go. And the last plague was the plague of the firstborn, that all the firstborn children would be killed. Except for those people who would put blood over the doorframe of their house. And the angel of death passed over those homes that put blood over the doorframe. And so then God led them out of Egypt and he formed them into a new people. But right from the beginning, they complained. They argued. They grumbled. When they didn't have the food that they needed, they complained. Rather than calling out to God, they said, we should have go back to Egypt. At least in Egypt, we had food to eat. When they needed water, rather than crying out to God, asking him to provide water, they said, we're going to all die. We've come out into the wilderness for nothing. Moses, you've brought us here to die. And so from the beginning, they're grumbling, they're complaining. But God gives them the Ten Commandments. And he gives them a number of other laws related to the Ten Commandments. And then Moses reads the covenant, the Ten Commandments and the laws related to that to the people. And look at what they say in Exodus chapter 24 after Moses reads it to them. It says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all, that the, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We'll do it all. We'll follow the Ten Commandments. We'll keep your law, O God. But after that, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and God gives him further instructions. And he's up there for 40 days. But before he even comes down from the mountain, look at what happens in Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so they make a god a golden calf, and they worship this golden calf. Before Moses even comes back down from the mountain, they break the first and most important commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. But they all said, we'll keep all of your laws. We'll keep all of your rules. And so the disciples say, surely I won't betray you. Surely, even if we have to die, we'll be with you. Peter says, they can all fall away, but and I won't leave you. The Israelites said, God... We will follow your commands and all that you say. And yet all of them failed. None of them were faithful. In order to understand the table, we need to understand ourselves. And the thing we need to understand about ourselves is we're not as faithful as we think we are. We're not as faithful as we think we are. 
And we think back to these circumstances and we think retrospectively that we would have acted differently. We think if we were in Peter's situation, surely we wouldn't have denied Jesus. If we were in the Israelite situation and God had done all these things for us, surely we wouldn't have worshipped a golden calf. But weren't those the same things that these people were saying? The Israelites, they said, we'll never follow after another God. We'll keep your law. The disciples says, we won't fail you. We'll stay with you to the end. They were saying, I'll be faithful to you, and yet they weren't. Sometimes we say that we'll be faithful to God, but we aren't. I mean, we say we'll be faithful to God and be honest, but then we get into that situation where it's a little bit easier to lie than to tell the truth, and we lie. Whoops. Or we say that we'll be faithful to God and stop drinking or eating to excess, and then we get in that situation where it looks and sounds so good, and we partake. Or we say that we'll be faithful to God and stop watching pornography, but then an ad pops up, and so we watch it just last, one last time, and we tell ourselves, this is just the last time. We say that we'll be faithful to God and not gossip. But then we overhear somebody say something. This really juicy piece of information. And we just have to share it with somebody else. And so we do. We say we'll be faithful to God and not let money own us. And yet we go to the store and we see all these fun, nice things that we can have. And suddenly our devotion to God has been replaced by a devotion to money. We said we'd be faithful to him, and yet we're not. Paul puts it this way in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all failed. We've all failed to be faithful to our Savior. So in order to understand the table, we need to understand the fact that we're not always faithful. That we're not as faithful as we think we are. But also, in order to understand the table, we also need to realize that we need to understand our Savior. In order to understand the table, we need to understand our Savior. What's amazing to me is that Jesus knew from the very beginning that his disciples were going to fail him. He knew that when the going got tough, they were all going to flee. And yet he still chose to invest his life with them. And he still invited them to his table. See, the people that Jesus invites to his, pa- to his table are not the people who have it all together. Not the people who are faithful all the time, but the people who are broken. The people who are faithless. The people who are in need. Those are the people he invites to come and to dine with him at his table. Look in the text what he offers to his people. He, offers, he takes the bread and he says, this is my body. The faithful one offers his life for the faithless one. Then Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is the blood of the covenant of my blood. In the Hebrew understanding, the life was considered to be in the blood. A creature's life was in the blood. And so in saying this, he's offering the totality of all he is for his people. And the context of what he's saying here again goes back to Exodus 24. You know, we talked about how Moses read the law to the people. And how they failed to keep the law just after a few days. But after he read the law to the people, there had been sacrifices that were made. And he took the blood of the sacrifices, or part of the blood of the sacrifices, and he sprinkled it all over the people. He sprinkled it on the people after the covenant was confirmed and after they said, we will do 
what we, the words of the law. And the words that Moses says are quite similar to what Jesus says in Mark 14. Moses says, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then after that, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders went up and they beheld God. It says they ate and they drank with God, fellowshiped with God. And they were able to do that because they were covered by the blood. So then we go back to the Passover celebration that Jesus is celebrating. And in the Passover celebration, there were four cups that we usually drank in the Passover. And those four cups represented four different things that God promised to do for the Israelites when they were uh, coming out of Egypt. And so the first cup represented the promise that God promised that I will bring you out of Egypt. The second cup represented I will deliver you. The third cup represented I will redeem you. And the fourth cup represented I will take you. Now when Jesus says this, this blood is the blood of my covenant, and he takes the cup, he's most likely referring to the third cup, the cup of redemption. And in that, he's demonstrating to his disciples that his blood is the mark of the new covenant. It's no longer a covenant that's based on the people's faithfulness, but on his faithfulness. It's not a covenant that's sealed by the blood of an animal, but a covenant that's sealed by the blood of the perfect Son of God. It's a covenant that doesn't just cover over us. For the people of Israel, the blood was sprinkled on them. It covered over their sin. For the person who's a believer in Jesus, Jesus offers His blood and His body not just to cover us, but to come inside of us, to become a part of us. To not just cover us, but to transform us from the inside out. To give us His life, His love, so that we might experience what it's like to know God. And what's interesting is that Jesus says that He won't drink of the vine again until He comes into His kingdom. And in the Passover, there would have been one more cup to drink, but He doesn't drink of that cup. And I think the reason He doesn't drink of that cup is because that fourth cup is still in the future. It's when Jesus will come back. He says, I will take you. And one day there's a day coming when Jesus will come back and he'll take us to be where he is. And so Jesus offers the cup of redemption to the disciples for them to drink so that they might experience the fourth cup, a relationship with God, fellowship with him forever. So when we partake of communion, we remember the body that was broken for us. We remember the blood that was shed for us. Remember the cup that Jesus drank and offers to us so that one day we might spend forever with him and drink of the cup and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Pastor Rick Easel tells a story about a young man named Lucas. And uh, it was the Saturday morning of November 12, 1986, and Jamie Estoff was traveling from her home in Stillwater, Oklahoma to work uh, at a restaurant near the interstate. And as she was traveling to work, she was just about to get to work, and somebody came around the corner, driving 90 miles an hour. It was Lucas. She tried to swerve out of the way, but as she swerved, he ended up hitting her right on the driver's side, and she was killed instantly. Lucas, for his part, was thrown from the vehicle, but he had only a broken arm and a few scrapes and bruises. Lucas wasn't a bad 17-year-old kid. 
he was an honor roll student. He was in the band, generally a good kid, but he made a very tragic and terrible mistake. He had drunk way too much. At his trial, witnesses testified of Lucas' achievements in the classrooms. They talked about how he was such a wonderful kid, about his service to the community, his kind heart, his church involvement. But the prosecuting attorney reminded the jury that, and the judge that there was a young girl's life was taken. Despite the fact that he was a caring boy, despite the fact that he was an honor, on the honor roll, he had done something really stupid, something really irresponsible, and it cost someone their life. And so the court awaited in anticipation of the judge's verdict of the case. What would he decide? And then the judge spoke from his bench, and he said to remorseful Lucas Jones, Lucas, as the witnesses have testified, you're a decent young man. And from your own statement, I realize that you are truly sorry for the crimes you've committed. I want to believe that, as you say, you will never touch alcohol again. He said, but, there was a long pause. A young, innocent girl is dead because of your irresponsibility. And nothing you can do will bring her back. Her friends and family mourn her loss. I therefore sentence you to two years in the juvenile center. Since you've already spent 16 months, the balance of your time will be eight months. A gasp came over the whole courtroom as Jamie's family thought that the sentence was far too lenient. And the judge went on. For the rest of your natural life, every year on November 12th, you're to go to the scene where you plowed into Jamie's car and think about your actions. Son, I don't want you to ever forget what you've done. I want you to recall your poor judgment, the life that was taken, and your part in that. In a similar way, we come to the table and we remember who we are. Remember that we've failed to be faithful. That we've broken God's laws. That we haven't honored Him as we should. And we remember that it's our sin that put Jesus on the cross. But also as we come to the, fa- to the table, we find that our Savior is more gracious and more merciful than we could ever imagine. That as we come to Him as broken faithless sinners. He shows us His love. He shows us His grace. And He offers us His very life. And so we come to the table finding strength, finding nourishment, finding hope, knowing that Jesus loved us so much that He gave everything for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You for Your grace. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, you came to the earth to die for us. You offer us your body and your blood as a gift, not because we've earned it, but because you love us. Lord, as we celebrate communion today, we look forward to the time when you will return, that you'll take us to be where you are. And we remember with gratitude the sacrifice that you've made and all that you've done for us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, at this time, the elements are going to be distributed, and we're going to sing a song, and then we'll partake together.